Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are in the midst of our series on the book of Hebrews, and we began this series a number of weeks ago. We've called this series Anchored. This is today the ninth installment in our series on the book of Hebrews. And what we've seen in our study of the book of Hebrews is that we have a need in our Christian life to anchor ourselves in an active way to the rock of our salvation. That if we have been believers in Christ for some period of time, there is a temptation available to us to merely tread water in our relationship with God. But the reality is that we live in a world where there is a current that wants to sweep us away from intimacy with Him. And therefore, we have a need to actively anchor ourselves to Christ on a daily basis. And we have seen the reasons for that and how that plays out over the duration of our study. And we're going to continue uh, that today by looking at another section from Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. But before we, we dive in and look at those verses, let me pray for our time. Father, thank you so much for just the opportunity to gather together. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And thank you, Father, that you have sent your spirit into our hearts to illuminate this text for us. Father, um, we do not need to hear from me, but we absolutely need to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak through me your words um, so that we all might get a better understanding of what you are calling us to as believers in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would just guide me in what I say and that you would protect me from saying anything that you wouldn't want said. But Father, if I do say something you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. Father, any words that I share that are your words and your truth, I pray that we would remember them and we would believe them we would walk forward in them in the power of your Spirit, that we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, 11 summers ago, uh, my friend David Ridgway came to me with a proposition. He said, have you ever considered running a marathon? Uh, and if, if so, uh, would you consider running one with me, the 2002 Cowtown Marathon? Um, well, I had never been uh, someone who had run that kind of distance before, but for whatever reason, uh, David's invitation struck a chord with me, and I, I had an interest in, in pursuing it. And so we began this path of, of training for this race, and, and uh, somehow, some way, in the midst of it all, it's something that, that I've really enjoyed. And so over the last 11 years, I've, I've actually participated in four marathons and, and a half marathon, and and all this stuff. And so, but because of all of that, um, I, I've, I've been thinking about running lately. And I, I thought, you know, there are probably people in this room who have never experienced an endurance event like that before, but would like to. And would like to know how to get started in that process. Um, I see more this than this, but there are some of you out there, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, and so because knowing that some of you are out there, I, I felt the need to put together maybe three tips for you on running an endurance race. Uh, three things, you know, three of Mark's marathon tips maybe to help you get started. Really, there are three things that you just need to remember if this is something that you're going to do. The first thing you need to remember is you need to remember that you're running a marathon. 
okay? This is important because if you forget this, you might take off out of the gates as fast as you possibly can, and you'll be exhausted before you ever get to the first, into the first block. If you're going to run a marathon, you need to remember the length that you're running. It's the same that's true when you're training. If when you're training for an event like that, you need to remember that you're not training just for a mile, but you're training for 26 miles, and, and it just it, it impacts your thought process and the speed at which you go. A second thing you need to remember, though, is you need to remember that it's not just about speed, but it's about time and persistence. That running a marathon is about being willing to, to consistently get out there and train and adding a few miles every week. It's, it's about having enough time to build up the, the durability in your body in order to be able to finish. It's, it's about allowing enough time in your schedule in order to, to be able to complete those training. It's about time and persistence way more than it's about speed. There's a third tip that you really have to know, and this maybe is the most critical, and this is you need to remember that Oprah ran one. Um, if you are to complete a marathon, those three tips are really all you need to know in order to get out. The, that's the, I've, I've lived by those over the last decade, and, 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 and by full disclosure, you need to know this. Oprah beat me in her time in every time I've ever done this, okay? So, like, I've got a picture of Oprah on my, you know, in my gym bag. I'm, I'm just, I'm, one day I'll, I'll get to her level, right? Um, but, you know, you think about uh, running a marathon or running an endurance event, and uh, uh, obviously I'm not here to persuade you to compete in something like that. Uh, but I do think that a marathon or an endurance race is a very apt analogy to the Christian life. As a matter of fact, uh, the, you know, God thinks it's an apt analogy to the Christian life, and that's why he uses it at various points in the New Testament as a picture of what it looks like to live in relationship with Him. Uh, one of the instances where God uses that analogy is in Hebrews chapter 12, which we're going to see a little later on today. But the Christian life is much more like a marathon, and we need to remember this as we set out to live our Christian lives. As, as Howard Hendricks says, if the Christian life were a hundred-yard dash, we all would be eminently successful. But it's not. It's a marathon. See, if the Christian life were a 100-yard dash, we many times would get there. But we forget that it's a marathon, that it goes on for, for years and years and years. And we need to remember this because we have a need to live in relationship with God, to live in relationship with Him through Jesus Christ for more than just 26.2 minutes after we got back from summer camp. We need to live in an active life of faith more than just 26.2 days after we got back from the Family Life Conference. We need to live in relationship with Him more than just 26.2 months after we joined that great new small group. See, we have a need to live in relationship with Him 26.2 years and beyond after we entered into that relationship. And because of that, we need to, to ponder and think about how we live out our Christian life for the long haul, how we run with perseverance the race marked out for us, how we, we run a marathon and not a sprint in our spiritual lives. And I believe that the key to us running a marathon in our spiritual life is 
to understand the essence and the nature of faith. See, if we are to to live out this life for the long haul, it's going to involve a good measure of faith, trusting that each step will eventually get us to the places where God wants us to go. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, through chapter 12, verse 2. Not every single verse, but some representative verses within that section that to help us to understand a little more about how understanding faith can help us to run with endurance this marathon that is the Christian life. Uh, We're going to see two things today from chapter 10, verse 39, all the way through chapter 12, verse 2. So if you've got a Bible, take, take it out and open. We're going to begin in verse 39 of chapter 10. And we're going to begin by seeing one thing uh, at the start. We're going to see that faith cannot see, but it is not blind. Faith cannot see, but it is not blind. We see this in 1039 through the balance of, of chapter 11. See, faith is the key to us living a Christian life of of perseverance, of of running the marathon. And we see that in verse 39. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are a people of faith. Faith is uh, the, the theme of the life of a Christian. God is calling us to live by faith. But what does that mean and, and what even is faith? Well, as I mentioned earlier, faith cannot see, but it is not blind. Well, where do we see that? We see that as the writer of the book of Hebrews begins to unpack what faith really is. Uh, He begins that process in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing something is there, believing something is real, believing something is true, even if we can't see it. If we can see it, it isn't faith. Faith is believing in something that we cannot see. We cannot see God, but we believe that He exists. That that involves a a measure of faith. We, We can't see it, but we believe it so. We have a desire to be forgiven. We believe that we're forgiven, though we don't have a certificate that says forgiven. We believe that it is so. We have faith that it's so. Um, We believe or have faith that God loves us. Though we, we don't get a card on Valentine's Day, though I don't hear a voice in my ear in the morning that says, Mark, I love you from God. Though I don't, I don't see it in that way, I still believe that it's so. We have, we have faith that it's so. Faith is believing something is real even if we can't see it. Faith is something that we cannot see. Verse 2 tells us that faith is what God desires of us. It says, for by it the people of old received their commendation. In other words, God has been consistent in His dealings with His people and that He has rewarded faith. The thing that God desires back from us is faith. The thing that God desires back from us is believing that what He says is true even if we can't see it. This was true all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God created this 
this paradise, he put a tree in that garden that he told Adam and Eve not to eat from. God's desired response from Adam and Eve was that they would believe God, that they would take him at his word, even though they couldn't see that that tree was bad to eat. They would just believe that when God says it was bad, it was bad, and that they wouldn't eat from it. God's desire for them was that they would, were to have faith. God's desire for His people throughout time was that they would respond to faith. God's desire for you today is that you would have faith. If you wondered, what is it that God desires from me today? The answer is that God wants you to trust Him, to take Him at His word, to believe in Him, to have faith. See, faith is, is something that cannot see. It's something that God desires from us. But faith is not something that is blind. Faith is not some blind leap. Look at what verse 3 says. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Now, this is fascinating to me. In a discussion of faith, when he just had said that faith is in something that is unseen, the example that he gives is that of creation. He says, if you want to know a demonstration of what faith is, faith is believing that God created everything out of nothing, even though, because, because we can't see it. And that's true. We don't have a DVD copy of the creation of the world so that we can see nothing, boom, something. We don't have the ability to, to prove without a shadow of a doubt that God is the first mover. We, we can't see that. And yet, believing that God created the world is not some kind of blind leap. It's based on something much more solid than that. As a matter of fact, um, the belief that God created the world is, is something that even science today is acknowledging um, is, is, a, is a good direction to go. Uh, Dr. Mike Strauss, who is a professor at OU in, in the physics department, he's a member at Wildwood and generally one of the smartest people that I've ever met. Um, this is what Mike said about science's current understanding of creation. It says, until about 1960, there was a general consensus in the scientific community that as we learn more about the physical universe through our investigation, we would be able to explain all that we observed and that this would render any belief in God unnecessary or irrelevant. However, just the opposite has happened. As our knowledge of the origin and complexity of the physical world has increased, we have come to realize that the universe is so intricate and well-conceived that a number of scientists have proposed that the universe must be the product of an intelligent designer. What Mike is, is saying, he's echoing some of the, the current thinking in science, is that belief in a creator it is in something that is unseen, but it's not a blind leap. It's based a number of the pieces of evidence that exist in science are pointing towards origin, are pointing towards a creator. And you might hear that, and you might be skeptical of that. You might say, well, of course, Mike Strauss, who is a Christian, would say that. His beliefs have influenced his science. And, and I think if Mike were standing here beside me, he would say, of course, his beliefs have influenced his science in different ways. But, but there are others who are saying the same thing. Dr. Robert Jastrow, who was a professor at Columbia and at, at Dartmouth, he's a professed agnostic. 
he was very high up in NASA and has done a lot of thinking about the and study on the creation of the world. This is what he says. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. See, Dr. Jastrow has, has come to realize that belief in a creator is not some blind leap. See, it's based on something that is, that is proving true. And, and faith for us, though it is in things that are unseen, is not just some blind leap. Now, I mentioned earlier that we have a desire to know that we're forgiven, that, that we have faith if we know Christ that we are forgiven. Is that just a blind leap that, that helps us to, to assuage our conscience, that helps us to sleep at night, to say that we're forgiven? I don't think so at all. See, our belief in our forgiveness, our our faith that we are forgiven in Christ is is built off of what God has revealed to us in history. See, God revealed to His people for thousands of years that that because of sin, that that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of that sin, and He he, he taught that through a sacrificial system, and and then He sent His Son to die on the cross, and, and Jesus lived a perfect life, and when He died, He said, my blood sacrifice, my body that I'm offering up is sufficient to pay the price for everyone's sins so that they might be forgiven, any who trust in Me. You see, my faith in my forgiveness is not found just in a hope or a sentiment or, or some kind of crutch. My hope and my forgiveness is, is, is unseen and that I don't have a certificate that says I'm forgiven, but it is not blind and that it is resting on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Do we have a desire to know that, that we're loved? And, and we don't get the card on Valentine's Day. We don't hear the audible voice every morning. And, and so it's, it's, it's unseen. But is my belief that God loves me, is that somehow a blind leap? Or is it based on something real? I believe it's based on something real. It's based on the historical event when Christ demonstrated. God says, for God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If I ever wanted to wonder, does, does God really love me? I need to merely look at the historical event of Jesus' death on the cross to say that my my knowledge that God loves me is not based on just some sentiment I want to hang on to, but it's based on the fact that God demonstrated in history the links with which he would go in order to live in relationship with me. And he's offering the same to you as well. See, our faith is unseen. But it's not a blind leap. It's resting on the reality of a God who has chosen to reveal himself to us so that our faith is in something solid, not just in our imaginations, not just a crutch for the weak, but our faith is believing in the unseen based on how God has revealed himself. Now, living this life of faith, now that we know what faith is, not a blind leap, but in things that are unseen and, and trusting God for that, 
Um, this life of faith is, is not an instant life. It's not an instant life. It doesn't happen uh, at the very moment. Sometimes we think if, if we just have faith, and you, maybe you've heard this taught before, if we have faith, then, then automatically we get what we have faith for immediately. It's this notion of the health and wealth teachers who believe that if you just have enough faith that your illness will go away, if you just have enough faith that your, your pockets will be filled with all of the material possessions that you need, and it'll happen immediately. Now, most of us don't hold to something that extreme, but, but a lot of us struggle with the immediacy of our faith. We're believing God for things, but it doesn't seem to happen immediately. We believe that we're forgiven, but we still feel guilty. We believe that He loves us, but sometimes we still feel alone. So we live our lives as Christians running this marathon of the Christian life without an immediate return for our faith many times in the way that we feel and the things that we see. And sometimes we can wonder if our faith is wrong, if that's the case. The reality, though, that is unfolded for us in chapter 11 of Hebrews is that if we're waiting for something that God has promised but not yet materialized, that's not the exception, that's the norm. See, the life of faith for the people of God is, is always looking forward to a reality that we're not yet experiencing. That's what the life of faith is all about. Uh, it's not something that is true just with us today, but it's something that's been true about God's people from the beginning. That's why chapter 11 of Hebrews is called the Hall of Faith, and it walks through the experience of all these Old Testament believers and what their lives look like. Their lives involved a lot of waiting. You see, God promised Abraham a mighty nation. God promised Abraham uh, offspring, and He promised to, to bless the nations of the world through him, and yet and we see that, and we, we remember that, and we hear that, but Abraham had to live decades waiting for any of that to be realized. And even when he died, he didn't even own any land, and yet God had said he would be a mighty nation. He didn't have influence across the face of the earth, and yet God said that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. See, Abraham's life was a life of waiting, but we're blessed with the perspective of the rest of Scripture. We know that God did work through Abraham to make a, a mighty nation. He, he developed the nation of Israel through Abraham. We know that God did bless all the peoples of the world through Abraham and that Christ was a descendant of Abraham that would offer salvation to mankind. But Abraham's experience of living by faith was trusting God for things that he did not see. We, we know that his faith paid off because we know the rest of the story, but in his life on this earth, he had to live trusting God for things he didn't see. Not an, not an immediate return, but a marathon. Not a, not a sprint, but a marathon. You think of Moses. God said, I'm going to do something great through you, Moses. I'm going to lead my people out of Egypt and take them to the promised land. And, and Moses responded. He didn't hang on to his privilege in Egypt, but he led God's people out and he he led them on this exodus, and, and that was great, but Moses never got to take God's people into the promised land. Now, we know that God made good on the promise and that God's people eventually did get there, but Moses had to live for 40 years wandering with his people in the desert, living a life of faith, trusting God for that which he did not see. 
See, the reality is for us that we live a life of faith when we take God at His Word, even when we can't see it. Not based on just our, our, our sentiment or our rough ideas, but, but based on the reality that He has revealed to us in His Word. See, we are called to live a life of faith that, that cannot see, but, but is not blind. Well, in light of that life of faith, what do we do? Well, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, gives us some application. In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says this. It says, keep faithfully running toward Him. Keep faithfully running toward Him. We see this in the first two verses of chapter 12. It begins in verse 1 and says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, in these verses we see this very clear picture of the Christian life being like an endurance race, the Christian life being like a marathon. And he talks about this this Christian life that is a marathon being lived out around such a great cloud of witnesses. As a matter of fact, it says that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Well, who are those witnesses that are surrounding us? I think in context, we understand that the witnesses that surround us are the Old Testament saints. They are the men and women who walked with God, who have gone before us. They're the people that are mentioned for us in in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. They they are those who have gone before us. They are those who are, are now transitioned out of this life, and this tells us that they are surrounding us as witnesses. Now, what does it mean to say that these Old Testament saints are surrounding us as witnesses? I know maybe you've thought of this in the past as I have. I've thought of this being surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. I've thought of it in terms of uh, they're like in some grandstands in heaven watching us compete on this earth. Um, that that they, they've kind of done their thing, they've lived their life of faith, and now they're up there in the stands watching us live out our life of faith. And, and, you know, in one hand, they've got a thing of popcorn, and in another hand, they've got their scorecard. And they're, they're, they're witnessing to us in the sense that they're, they're judging us as far as how faithfully we're living out our life of faith. You know, for a long time, I, I viewed this cloud of witnesses somewhat like that. They are witnessing me. They are watching me. But as I've been reading Hebrews uh, this summer, and specifically even this last week, just looking more in depth at chapter 12, uh, there's, there's an entirely different idea laying out for us here, I think. I think the idea is not that they are watching us, but the idea is that we are watching them talk about how God is faithful. And we do that by seeing their stories that are recorded for us in the Word of God. In a sense, the passage is telling us that all of us are like jurors in a trial, and on trial is the faithfulness of God. 
And the Old Testament is full of story after story of people who take the stand and say, God was faithful, and here's how, over and over and over and over again. So that when we read our Bibles, we find a faithful God described here, so that when we're called to place our faith in Christ, when we're called to trust Him for the things that we can't see, that it's not some blind leap for us. But we're called to trust the God who has revealed himself as faithful in the past. You see, they are gathered not to watch us, but we gather and we look into his word to watch them to find out just how much God can be trusted. And you know what we find? He can be trusted a lot. And so we're called, based on the fact that God is faithful, we're called to run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Look at what it says. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He calls us as we are to run this race with endurance, as we're to run a marathon and not a sprint, to fix our eyes on Christ. I think he calls us to do that for for a couple of reasons. One reason is he calls us to look to Christ as the supreme example, the star witness in the trial of God's faithfulness. See, Jesus is the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, and yet as he lived out his life on the planet, uh, it didn't look that way. Instead of a golden crown, he got a crown of thorns. Instead of power, he was a servant. Instead of of life, he was crucified, and his disciples saw it all happen. You see, the disciples and us, as we read the, the New Testament, are called to believe that Jesus is who he says he is in his earthly life, even though it didn't look like all the time like he was fully in charge. And we know that God is faithful because we know the rest of the story regarding Christ. That after his death on the cross, that he was resurrected and God seats him at the right hand as a place of honor and authority and power. That God made good on everything that was promised to Christ. And God is is working through his son even now, awaiting one day his return. You see, we look to Christ as our example because He is the star testimony in the trial of God's faithfulness. But the second reason why we're called to look to Christ is because He helps us mark out our path and our way to go. See, if we look to Christ, then we're looking to Him to determine our course and our, and our, and our path. He's the one who marked the race out for us, and, and we're going to trust to run that path because He's the one that set it out. You know, I mentioned for you earlier that, that I have uh, run some of these distance events before. And, you know, in every marathon that I've run, um, you know, I've never once walked the route before I started. I just trusted that the organizers of the race had it well planned. I never once drove it with a car to find out if they really had it right, 26.2. I just trusted that the organizers of the race we're going to do that. And, and you know, it, what, a, what a wild thing to think if, if you had a race organizer um, that just, you know, 
was a masochist somehow, and they would just lead people on these these trails around the city for for miles and miles and miles, you know, for hundreds of miles instead of 26.2 miles just because they could, because none of us mapped it out beforehand. See, there's a measure of faith as I started the race that I was going to run the race that they had marked out for me because I trusted them in terms of the length. When we look to Christ, what, what this passage is encouraging us to do is to trust that He has marked out the appropriate path for us so that when we see him say, take a left turn or to take a right turn, we take it trusting that he knows best. Even if we can't see it, even if it doesn't feel right, we're going to take him at his word and we're going to follow him because he is the one that we're trusting in. He's the one that's marked the path out for us. And in the process of doing that, in the process of, of following him as our lead, of fixing our eyes on him, there's a couple of things we need to get rid of as we run this race. The first thing we need to get rid of is we need to get rid of or to lay aside, it says, every weight. Now, what is that, laying aside every weight? Well, the idea of a, of a weight is something that would slow you down. It's not something that would disqualify you from the race, but it certainly is something that would keep you from winning. Think of it this way. When Usain Bolt lines up to run in the Olympics in a few weeks, He's probably not going to have 50-pound weights on his chest and on his back. Would the Olympic organizers allow him to do that? Yes. Would his fellow competitors love for him to do that? Of course. Why? Because they don't want him to win. But because he wants to win, he's not going to run with 50-pound weights on his front and on his back. Michael Phelps, when he gets up on the blocks to start his one of his 18 million races, he's going to race in the Olympics. He's not going to be wearing a three-piece suit with a tie. He's not going to be wearing a bunch of cotton or terry cloth. Well, why do we put kids in terry cloth swimsuits? Well, he would not be wearing something like that. Why is that? He's been wearing some, something sleek because it helps him to move quickly through the water. And this passage is saying that there are certain things that we pick up in this life that we certainly, we can't pick them up, but they will keep us from running the race that he's marked out for us to win. These things, these are things that aren't sin, but they are things that will certainly slow us down in the race. What are the things in your life that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're things that might keep you from following Christ as he's calling you to do so? Maybe it's, maybe it's stuff. I mentioned last week, one of the things that keeps us from gathering together is we just have too many entertainment options. Maybe it's just an experience or entertainment. Maybe it's, it's a set of relationships that have a, a negative influence on you, and, and, and you know that. You know, what are the weights that we add to our lives that, that aren't necessarily inherently wrong in and of themselves, but they keep us from running the race marked out for us? passage says that we're to lay those aside. It also tells us to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles, the sin which clings so closely. This is the admission that there are things that are sinful, greed, lust, anger that rises to the level of sin, whatever that might be, that it wants to creep up in our lives and it wants to actually wrap itself around our legs and trip us up and keep us from running forward. These are things that won't just slow us down. These are things that will keep us from running. I don't know what they are for you, the, the weights and the sin. 
that easily entangles, but all of us have got it. Everyone in this room, me included, have got things that want to weigh us down or take us out. And this passage tells us that we are to, to run fixing our eyes on Christ, on Christ, throwing those things off, laying those things aside. And the way that we do that is by living the life of faith. Remember, faith cannot see, but it is not blind. And when it comes to these areas of our lives, we need to have faith because it's faith that even though we can't see it, says it's better to not do these things that are weighting me down so that I can follow Christ more fully. We need faith because it certainly doesn't feel that way in the moment. And yet we're trusting that God can provide and that God's way is better. The same thing is true with sin. Why do we sin? Because we like to. Now, we hate, hate it afterwards, but there's an appeal to it. And the life of faith says, even though sin is appealing, I'm not going to indulge it. I'm going to trust that God's way is better. You see, we are called to run a race of endurance. We are called to run a marathon and not a sprint. We're called to run faithfully towards Christ, the the map that He's marked out for us, laying aside the weight of the sin. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up as we prepare to close. And as they come, they're going to be leading us in a closing song um, called Blessed Be the Name. And in this song, it, it's a song about faith. It talks about how whether things are going well, whether there's streams of abundance, or, or whether you're in a desert place and things are going poorly, that regardless of our circumstances, that we could say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that, that act is an act of, of faith. It's faith that says that even though I can't see it, I'm going to believe it so. But that faith is not blind in that it's saying, even though I can't see it, I believe it is right to trust in God anyway, regardless of what I see. Because He has proven Himself faithful over time. Please stand and join us as we close and sing.